I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Hokkaido 150. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Noemi Godfroy, Associate Researcher at the University of Languages and Civilizations, Paris, France. Dr. Godfroy has published widely in French, Japanese, and English on Ainu assimilation policies in the early modern and modern periods. Dr. Godfroy, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for inviting me. Your work has examined the relationship between Japan and the northern island of Hokkaido going all the way back to the early modern period and earlier. So can you briefly survey some of the ties between Japan and the northern territories prior to the formal incorporation of Hokkaido in 1869? Absolutely. What I think is very interesting in the whole concept of of these anniversaries is that you can see them in different ways. You can either see the ruptures, how this specific anniversary is going to mark a specific difference between a before and an after, or you can choose to try to see it as a continuity, what stayed the same as opposed to what evolved. So this is something that has been on my mind for a while while studying Hokkaido or uh, Izo as it was called before uh, 1869. And in fact, I was mainly interested in maybe the continuities. So what what was the same, what stayed the same before and after this Meiji divide. And in fact, when you look at the history of Hokkaido, of Izo, so Izo encompassing the Ainu lands, uh, Hokkaido, the Kuril, and southern Sakhalin. Uh, What's interesting there is that the relations between Japan, as it were, and the Ainu lands date back very, very far back, so proto-historic times. And this is attested by archaeological but also linguistic evidence. When you learn Japanese, it can happen that you, in fact, learn old Ainu words that made it into old Japanese because of these very, very ancient commercial ties. For example, the word sake or shake to uh, designate salmon, or the word dakko for sea otter, or even the word tonakai for reindeer all come from the Ainu language. And when you read Ainu epic poems that were transcribed and have been published, you can see some Japanese words here and there within the Ainu language. So these ties uh, date back very, very far back. And I think that it's interesting to look into the very, very long history in order to understand dynamics in bilateral and multilateral relations. That's a really interesting point about proto-historical linguistic ties. I I wasn't aware that those words were Ainu in origin. Is the same true for some of those more unique city names and toponyms in the northeastern part of Japan that have unique readings? I'm thinking of, say, the city of Hachinohe. Absolutely. If we look even uh, further back, there's evidence that the Ainu or the ancestors of the Ainu, proto-Ainu populations, uh, lived as far south as northern Honshu. So when one thinks of the Ainu nowadays... They think of Hokkaido, maybe the Kuril, maybe Sakhalin, but there were Ainu living in the Tohoku region until they were somehow pushed up north by uh, the Japanese populations. And these linguistic ties that you can see in toponyms, as you said before, in, in place names or city names from the north of Japan further to Hokkaido, actually prove that there was a presence and that this 
presence led to commercial ties. And what's very interesting as well is that the access to these Ainu goods on the Japanese sides led to the establishment of Japanese strongholds further north and as far north as southern Hokkaido, in fact. And what was interesting is that these products, even though the Ainu were perceived and shown as a rather barbaric people during the Middle Ages, the the goods, the Ainu goods, eagle feathers, sea otter furs, or bear fur, or even bear gallbladders, were actually seen as, as very precious, charismatic goods that a noble family or a, a strong warrior clan had to obtain, had to acquire, in order to show that they had a specific influence in the region and prestige. So even though the Ainu were portrayed as barbaric, the charismatic goods from this faraway Ainu trade were very important for Japanese uh, clans and nobility. Speaking of commercial ties, your own research has looked at the ties between the Matsumai domain and the Ainu from the early modern period and then into the 19th century. Can you explain some of these commercial interactions for us? So the Matsumai family is actually one of the clans, one of the many clans that uh, were established in the south of Hokkaido, and the access to charismatic goods led to tensions intra-ethnic, so between the Japanese themselves and between the Ainu themselves, as well as inter-ethnic, so between the Ainu and uh, the, the Japanese. In the medieval times, there were different clans who had established strongholds in the south of Hokkaido, so the northernmost island of Japan, and the Matsumai emerged as those who could unite the other clans against the Ainu. And essentially, when the Tokugawa shoguns came to power, they recognized the Matsumai clan as the sole overseers of Ainu commerce. So in the beginning, we were still in a continuation of the medieval heritage with bilateral commerce with the Ainu that was fairly egalitarian. This was about to change because as Japan restricted its ultramarine commerce when it decided to select its commercial intermediaries, the Ainu trade, the northern trade, took on a, a much more important role in Japan during this Edo period. And Izo was one of the four doors ajar, one of the only ways in and out of the realm. And this really gave a lot of momentum to this northern trade, which evolved from a barter trade of charismatic goods to a much more important trade of marine products. From the beginning of the Tokugawa period, around the 17th century, governance, uh, such as one of the most famous ones being uh, Arai Hakusiki, decided that they wanted to restrict the exportation of precious metals. They wanted to keep them inside uh, within Japan. And so they had to find another product that could interest China and to a lesser extent the Dutch. And they realized that they had such a product in the form of what was called tawaramono, which means bailed goods. And these bailed goods, for the most part, were marine products. And a lot of these marine products actually came from Izo. So among them, you could find a kombu, so sort of, of kelp. You could find abalone, scallops, shark fins. But especially the most popular item of this exterior trade was sea cucumbers. So the Chinese ships and even the Dutch ships would wait for months if the ships from the northern trade were late in order to get their sea cucumbers. And I understand some of these trade relations were in the form of 
tributary ceremonies? Yes, the charismatic good trade did not completely disappear, even though it became less important than this northern marine product trade. But it kept going, and it took a more diplomatic term, diplomatic quote-unquote, because it's very different from uh, egalitarian bilateral uh, diplomacy. But the Ainu still had to give these charismatic goods to the Japanese, and this took place during audiences and the specific ceremonies, which usually happened either at the Matsumai Domain uh, Castle or sometimes in the different fisheries that were established in Hokkaido in order to produce the products of the northern trade, the sea cucumbers, the kombu, etc. And during these ceremonies, the Ainu's barbaric nature and uh, exotic way of life was made into a sort of, of spectacle to help widen the gap between the Japanese and the Ainu. In fact, for the Matsumai domain, it was very important that the Ainu stay submitted and that the Ainu and the Japanese stay in very separate spheres because the whole authority, the whole Matsumai authority depended on them keeping the Ainu at bay. And for most of the Edo period until 1799, in fact, the Ainu were forbidden from learning Japanese and learning Japanese customs in order to keep them subdued and in order to prevent them from having too much of a dialogue with their Japanese counterparts. That's a great point about how the Matsumai were using this trade as a way to solidify their own position within the Tokugawa system. Do we know about the situation on the other side? Were the Ainu individuals who are participating in this charismatic trade also using this trade as a way to elevate their own position amongst various groups inhabiting the Northern Territories? Absolutely. That's actually the reason why the Ainu got involved in this trade and became labor in the fisheries, because one could wonder what would the Ainu get from becoming labor in the fisheries and being used by the Japanese and being overworked, as it was the case from the middle of the 18th century. But what they gained was these charismatic goods, the same ones that they were getting in the medieval period and that they were acquiring even in proto-historic times. What was important for the Ainu was to have access to Japanese textile, Japanese sword, and Japanese lacquerware, which they collected in order to be able to organize specific ceremonies to pay homage to their gods. If you read the Ainu epic poems, it's very interesting that Okikurumi, which is the god who showed the Ainu how to live on earth, in the song of Okikurumi, he is shown going to commerce with the Japanese. So he puts different furs and eagle feathers and bear furs and gallbladders in a boat. And he is said to go to trade with the Japanese to obtain sake, tobacco, swords, and lacquerware in order to organize ceremonies. So the Ainu, in their commerce with the Japanese, in order to obtain charismatic goods, are actually just following the gods' example. And when they organized the ceremonies to pay homage to their gods, they had to lay out all of the Japanese goods. And if a god was content, if he was satisfied with the ceremony, then he would come back and visit them. And why was it important for gods to visit the Ainu? Because the Ainu believes that the gods could not be seen by human eyes and that they had to use some sort of armor, an envelope, in order to pay visits to the humans on earth. And so when the Ainu would kill animals, they would actually be releasing a god. 
and the god, in exchange for the ceremonies, would leave its flesh and its fur for the Ainu to consume. So without the Japanese goods, the Ainu could not organize ceremonies, and if the Ainu couldn't organize ceremonies, the gods would not come and see them, and if the gods would not come and see them, they would not be able to eat. So it was very, very important for the Ainu to keep this charismatic good trade going, even in very complicated circumstances at, from the end of the 18th century. And do we know if there were other groups in the northern areas competing with the Ainu to be the strongest? And maybe it was just the Ainu who were the ones recognized as the rulers of the northern territories? So if, if we read once again the Ainu sources and the Chinese sources, there were conflicts between the proto-Ainu and proto-Nivk populations who lived in southern Sakhalin for the access to eagle feathers, which was maybe one of the most important charismatic goods at the time. And the Ainu fought with the Nivk in order to have exclusive access to this good. So the Ainu from the southern coral and Hokkaido, if I'm not mistaken, actually went to Sahalin, fought with the proto-Nivk, and that's when they started settling in the south of Sahalin. And the Nivk were then pushed back further north. So this is around the maybe 10th or 11th century. And this explains also why there was a sort of unification between different Ainu regional groups, which led to a common culture of epic poems and of linguistic unity. Now, I understand that your recent work has put Hokkaido into a more global context. So can you describe what this global perspective of Hokkaido looks like? So this Hokkaido in global context is, is quite a, a nice story because you could almost summarize it as a series of not unfortunate but adventitious events. This was also mentioned by Donald Keene, but Russia was also very interested in fur and charismatic goods. And so Cossacks and other Russian colonizers started settling on the shores of the Pacific at the very end of the 17th century. And one of the Cossacks, called Vladimir Atlasov, actually reached the southernmost tip of the Kamchatka Peninsula, and there he met a Japanese castaway. So this is a little bit of story within a story, but I'm going to try to briefly explain how that Japanese merchant arrived in Kamchatka. One of the reasons why the Matsumai domain's position was so strong and Hokkaido was so important during the Edo period was not just sea cucumber, but herring. The Japanese population had gotten very high and that population had to be fed and they were using herring meal as fertilizer. When they realized that herring meal could be produced in Hokkaido for very cheap and that there were a lot of herring that arrived on the eastern shores of Hokkaido, then it became one of the, one of the produce and it also explains why the Ainu were used as labor in fisheries. And so there was a lot of traffic that was linking Izo, so Hokkaido, to the rest of Japan. But since Japan was under the selective opening edicts, the boats couldn't be bigger than a certain size. And so they had to be very, very small, sturdy boats that could hold 1,000 koku. So a koku is enough to feed one man during one year of rice. And so these boats were very, very sturdy. Their hull was very sturdy, but their masts were not strong enough that when strong winds and strong seas came about, the masts would break and the boats would just float around and be carried out by sea currents, which are quite strong uh, around Japan. And these sea currents would take 
the crews of these boats that could survive eating rice for a very, very long time, either to Kamchatka, the Kuril, or even all the way to Alaska, to the Aleutian Islands. And regularly, the Russians would stumble upon Japanese castaways. So the first time they met this Japanese castaway in southern Kamchatka, they didn't really know where he came from. And when he explained that he was from Japan, Peter the Great realized that Japan was actually quite close to its easternmost stronghold. And so he wanted to open up trade with Japan. And so he issued an edict that any time a Japanese castaway would be found, that he be brought back to Russia, where most of them became Japanese language teachers. So this is something that was not planned at all. And the first relations between Russia and Japan actually originated in unpredicted and unpredictable, maybe even events. And do we know about interactions more regionally amongst the Ainu and other peoples in Northeast Asia? So it's quite difficult since the only Ainu source that we have are these Ainu epic poems who only mention in passing the other people on the continent. The oldest Yukar mention conflicts with people from the open seas, from across the open seas. So we think those are the, the Proto-Nivk people. But most of the sources that we have are... Japanese, uh, to some extent Chinese, but they don't go into a lot of detail regarding the different contacts between the populations themselves. It's more bilateral contact between the Chinese and the indigenous or the Japanese and the indigenous. For most of the Edo period, the Ainu were kept separate from the Japanese and were maintained in a sort of, of state of, of ignorance of Japanese uh, language and Japanese culture. But with the increasing presence of Russia and also the increasing presence of European exploration missions, the shogunate decides to take control of Hokkaido starting 1799. So originally this, this control, this direct control, is only supposed to be provisional, but it's actually prolonged inde indeterminately. And the measures, the policies taken towards the Ainu are radically different from those that were put in place by the Matsumai domain. So in fact, the Ainu are no longer perceived as, as the enemy, but in fact, they're perceived as, as allies to the Japanese against the Russians, who are now the regional enemy. And some literati close to the Edo shoguns even go as far as to suggest that the Ainu should be armed to help defend this territory against Russian attacks. And in fact, when there are Russian attacks on southern Kuril Islands and southern Sakhalin in 1806-1807, it becomes quite clear that the Ainu are closer to the Japanese than even the, the Russians are. And I think that's interesting if we if we see it in the, the longer run and a wider, longer history of Japan going all the way to Meiji. Hokkaido 150, it's hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Musqueam First Nation. For more videos and information about Hokkaido 150, visit meijia150.arts.ubc.ca slash Hokkaido150. All music, copyright, Chikar Studios, and use courtesy of Okidab Ainu Band. Thank you for listening.
Beka, 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 beka,